0: you join me in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're going to actually bring our series on the life of David to a close this evening. We've been working our way through the life of David for several weeks, even months now, and we're going to jump ahead, we're going to review, and we're going to bring our series to a completion as we consider these last words of David, his last public statement here. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we do come to adore you. Lord, we're not here this evening to lift up ourselves. We're not here this evening to hear even what I have to say. We're not here to praise one another, Lord. We are here this evening to praise you. For you alone are worthy of worship. Lord, even as we look all around us, we see evidence of your greatness. In nature, even as we come into the Christmas season and we consider the incarnation, we see your love, your grace, your mercy for us. And Lord, as we look at this passage, at the end of David's life this evening, we'll once again see your grace, we see your mercy, we'll see your faithfulness, that you are a God who does all that you say. You're a faithful God. And Lord, that's not just Hope for David, that is hope for us. And so, Lord, may we rejoice in these truths, even as we're reminded and challenged. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been walking our way through the life of David now for several weeks, months, even as I mentioned. And last time, we found ourselves in 2 Samuel 12. As Nathan comes and he approaches David. David, who's committed this great sin in 2 Samuel 11. Murdering Uriah, marrying, uh, um, committing adultery. That sin that just, it starts and as he's trying to cover it, it, it just continues to grow more and more and more the more he tries to cover it. We saw in chapter 12 as he is confronted and he repents. We saw God's grace in how he treats David and yet we also saw that there are consequences for sins. In fact, we are, find ourselves in 2 Samuel 23 this evening, now jumping ahead to the end of David's life. But I'm going to walk through 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 22 and we're going to see the consequences of those sins. It starts in chapter 13, in the immediate aftermath of the beginning consequences in Second Samuel 12, when his son with Bathsheba dies, God grants him another son named Solomon, who we know goes on to do great things. But then we start to see some of the breakdown of his family. In fact, in chapter 13, as a result of David's many wives, he has many children. Many children who have many step siblings. One of David's sons in chapter 13, Amnon, rapes his half sister and David's daughter, Tamar. In 2 Samuel 13, verses 21 to 22, we know that David knows about this. In fact, we're told that he is angry. And rightfully so. And yet that's where it leaves it. Apparently, David does nothing about it. As the chapter goes on, in response to David's non-response, Absalom, Tamar's brother, waits patiently, full of hate, looking for an opportunity for revenge to kill his half-brother Amnon. Amnon to avenge his sister Tamar. He finally has that opportunity as so he invites all David's sons to a feast. He gets him drunk. He kills him. Absalom then flees. He lives in exile for three years. All during this time, David is dealing with the death of his son, Amnon. He's also dealing with the fact that his other son who killed him is now in exile. He's really lost two sons. You see the fatherly heart of David and his response to this. Despite the fact that Absalom murdered his brother, David's son, David still loves him. As you can imagine, as a father, he still loves him. Eventually he forgives Absalom. He allows him to come back to Jerusalem. But even with Absalom back, David can't go to him. David can't address him. And so David, even though he's back in Jerusalem, out of exile, David does not talk to Absalom. He ignores him for two more years. So he's in Absalom's in exile for three years. He comes back. David ignores him for two years. Finally, after five years, David is convinced to finally be fully restored. Second Samuel 14.33 However, the course of those five years, bitterness and hatred have already taken root in Absalom's heart. And though, and though he, he seems to have been restored to his father, secretly for the next four years, Absalom plots to overthrow and to kill David, his father. Through cunning, 2 Samuel 15, 6 tells us that Absalom stole the heart of the people. Eventually, he makes his move and David is forced to flee. One of the interesting things, David as a psalmist, a lot of the episodes of David's life, we have insight into his heart, what's going on in his heart during this. And I encourage you sometime, go to read go and read and work through Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is written in the context of Absalom's rebellion, having turned the people against him. It's written in the context of David having to flee. So we see that. But it's not enough for Absalom that David has been forced out of the palace. Rather, now with with David gone, Absalom marches into Jerusalem and he takes possession of all that was David's, even publicly lying with David's concubines on the roof of the palace for all to see that they may know that Absalom is in charge. is really intriguing dialogue going on chapter 16, 17, and 18. We have these two counselors giving counsel to the king. And once again, God delivers David. He restores him to Jerusalem. As Absalom listens to the Advice that God wants him to listen to? Yeah, in the course of this, Absalom dies as well. And David, once again, bears the pain of losing another son. That's three sons. And the innocence of one daughter that David has lost as a result of his sin. In fact, for the rest of his life, in 2 Samuel 19 to 22, there are more rebellions and more wars that are constantly popping up. As what Samuel or as what Nathan testified to, prophesied, happens that the sword does not leave David's house. For the rest of his life, he finds himself in conflict. It's in this context, with all of this having happened. Then we now jump ahead to 2 Samuel 23, the last words of David. I think it's important that we understand that context. Just pause and think for a second. If if you had been through that, what would your final testimony be? I'm sure David looks back with shame at some of the big mistakes he's made. I'm sure he regrets his mistakes with, his sins with Bathsheba, Uriah. I'm sure he regrets not speaking up and taking action with Tamar, among many other things. But what David focuses on here in his last words, his last public statement It's not the mistakes that he has made. And it's not the great things that he has done. What David focuses on is God's goodness to him. After all of this, in retrospect, as David looks back over his life, at all that God has done, And then as he looks ahead to all that God has promised, his testimony here at the end is that my God is faithful. See, chapter 22 involves a psalm of sorts as well. As David looks back, chapter 22 is really focused on looking back, praising God for all that he had done in David's life. And as we come to chapter 23, David now turns his attention forwards. Here in this statement, David's looking ahead. And he is clinging to that covenant that God made with him in 2 Samuel 7. God will keep his word, is the testimony of David's last words. You know it begins here. In the first verse, David introduces himself again, he's not focused on what he has done, but on what God has done for him. These are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. I am the man who was raised up. I am the one who God equipped. God did this. Not only did God equip me in raising me up, but then God anointed me. He raised me up, equipping me with all that I needed for what He anointed me to do. Anointed by the God of Jacob, the God who made a nation from Jacob, now raised up a man in his goodness and wisdom to lead that nation. He's also the sweet psalmist of Israel. Beloved by the nation who would sing his psalms. In verse 2 we see the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. Apparently David was aware. Of the inspiration of some of his words. That the Lord was working through him. In fact the... As David speaks now, the Lord speaking through him, David is speaking as a prophet. That's an interesting thing to note. Because we've also seen in 2 Samuel that David stands as a king, anointed as a king in 2 Samuel 5. and 2 Samuel 6, as the ark is moved into Jerusalem, David leads sacrifices standing as a priest. And now we find David speaking for the Lord as a prophet Here we find David, the model king, standing as prophet, priest, and king. A prophet, priest, and king who made a lot of mistakes, but a prophet, priest, and king who looks forward to a perfect prophet, priest, and king who is coming to fulfill all of God's promises. So what is it that God said through David? Verse 3, and really, from this, from this point on, this is really a, a messianic statement. Yes, it applies partially to David in the moment. It applies partially to his rule. But it looks forward to a greater David. It looks forward to the full fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, 8-19. The full fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. This is what the God of Israel said. The rock of Israel spoke to me. This is what he said. He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. God's man. Really looking to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The one who is to come. The Messiah, the promised one. The seed going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The one who rules must be just and rule in the fear of God. God's ideal king is a king who loves justice and who fears God. Who rules in righteousness. In full faith and submission to the Father. As he rules, as God commands, and in righteousness and in humility before God. What is the result of this rain? Verse 4. He shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds. Like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. The result of a just, of a righteous, of a Humble, faithful reign brings prosperity and life to the kingdom. Those who are under the reign of this king prosper. He brings peace. It's a peaceful scene. The light of the morning breaking out, rising in a beautiful sky without clouds the grass that's springing out of the earth. There's a couple ways you can take verse 5. In the New King James, it's written, although my house is not so with God, in which case it could be taking as David recognizing God's expectation and also confessing that he has fallen short of God's expectation. This is what God expects, and I have failed. But yet, verse 5 goes on, he has made an everlasting covenant with me. I have failed, but God will not fail. The other way you could take it is, does not my house stand with God? In which case David is saying... This is the king that I have stri- stru- that I have strived to be. But regardless, I know that God will fulfill his covenant. Either way, it's a recognition that God's promise does not stop with David's reign. It's a recognition that God's promise in the Davidic covenant reaches far into the future. That the end of David's reign is not the end of God's promise, It's not the end of God's goodness. In essence, with his last words, David is pleading with the nation to be faithful because your hope was not in me. Your hope is in God. I have failed many times and I will fail you again, but God remains faithful. Yet He has made with me an everlasting covenant. God will do what God has said. David's failure does not jeopardize God's faithfulness. God will save his people, as he said. He will raise up an eternal king who will rule his kingdom in righteousness and justice, bringing peace on earth. He has made an everlasting covenant. David has full expectation here that God will do all that God has said. That this king will come through his line as God has said. That this king will set up God's kingdom. And that that kingdom, through that kingdom, he will rule and reign through eternity. And that all of the earth will benefit from his reign. As the entire earth prospers. There's full expectation that God will do this. Yet verses 6 and 7, the focus is not just on God bringing all these good things, righteousness, but even verses 6 and 7 focuses on judgment as well. He's a just God. And his ruler will be a just ruler. The sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron in the shaft of his spear. The idea is you're out in the field and you're clearing the field and you come to a big thing of thorns. You don't reach down there with your hands and grab it and remove it. You have to have some kind of tool or something to help you move it out. You move it out of the way and then you just burn it right there in its place. Wicked men, those who do not submit to the Lord, in contrast the Lord's king, they will be dealt with. Justice will be done. In fact, this is a continual theme, not just in the life of David, but we see it even in the Psalms, which David had a lot to do with those as well. The theme of justice. That the wicked will be judged, the righteous will be reward. God will keep his promises. God's perfect king is coming. So be faithful. What an appropriate last words for the King of Israel. A word of hope, looking to the future, calling the nation to faithfulness, reminding them that their hope is not in Him. David is a great man, called a man after God's own heart, and he has done great things, but he is not Israel's hope. By the grace of God through him, he's coming. So here in his last words, David takes all the eyes off of him and he says, look there. Look there. Put your hope there. Long for that kingdom. Pray for that kingdom. Look for that king. Not here. So it is here at the end of David's difficult life. And frankly, by the end of his rule, I think you could almost say that it's a somewhat disappointing rule. Because the expectations were so high. And he was doing so well, but then he fell so far. But at the end, as this man sits down and pens his final words, it's not despair. It's not frustration that he writes. It's hope. It's a reminder that God is not done. As he implores with the people to be faithful because God is faithful. He doesn't look to the past here in this statement. He looks to the future full of anticipation. We read our call to worship. Luke chapter 1. And I caught this. You probably didn't because you didn't know what was coming. I did. There's a reason I picked that. Luke 1, verses 26 to 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying, And considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. Brothers and sisters, as we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the fulfillment of all that God promised David. This Jesus, this is the king that was promised back in 2 Samuel 7. And going on before that, he is the seed that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. And he is the one who is coming again. He is the one who we we long for him to come and we cry out over and over again, even so, come Lord Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you with David, don't put your hope in a man. Don't put your hope in a church. Put your hope in your faithful God. He will fulfill all of his promises. As David looked forward with anticipation, so we too must look forward with anticipation. We know some more information than he did, even as we look back to the manger and we look back to the cross. But we look forward with the same hope and assurance as David had. So a couple of points of application before we move to communion this evening. Number one, And this one's more, I guess, temporal, more focused here uh, in, in, the, in the moment than necessarily in the future. But in the life of David, one of the things that we note over and over again is sin is prominent all throughout his life. And one of the things we see is that sin has consequences. But as we come to the end of the life, at the end of David's life, one other thing that we see. is that there is hope for restoration. There is hope for sinners like David. There's hope for sinners like me. The end of David's story wasn't his sin with Bathsheba. It's a sad part of his story, but it's not the end of his story. God is faithful to the end. So if you're a sinner here this evening, like David, like me, there's hope for you. Your sin is not the end of your story. In fact, I would encourage you to confess your sin. Even as we come to this table, if there's any unconfessed sin, confess that. Maybe you need to to, to turn to your husband or your wife and confess to them. Maybe there's someone else in this room that you need to go to. Wrap your arms around them and tell tell them, I am sorry. Maybe you just need to spend some time alone in prayer. But there is hope for sinners, like you and me. Another thing, another encouragement from the life of David is the the truth we see in the New Testament, in Hebrews, that the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see that testimony all throughout David's life, because there were many times, many times, where it seemed like God should forsake David and move on to another king. But God is a faithful God who keeps his promises. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Along with just the hope that God is faithful and he will fulfill his promises. I've, I've encouraged you guys before. Go through the New Testament. Find those promises and cling to those promises. Know that God will fulfill them. Even as David knew. Even to his last day. That God would fulfill his promise to David. So we're going to transition now to the Lord's table. And as we transition, we're going to sing the song, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Which really moves well from the sermon to what we are about to do as we come to this table. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Why? Because the bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. Because my name is written on his hands. And this song continues to work us through that gospel, reminding us that there is hope for sinners like you and me. And so I encourage you, meditate on these words as we prepare our hearts to come to this table this evening. Arise, my soul, arise. Let's stand and let's sing hymn number 666. Arise, my soul, arise.